To know us is to podcast with us. This is where we live, in front of the mic. When we open up Adobe Premiere Pro 2023, it automatically starts recording, and we systematically greet the audience by saying, Hi, welcome to Film is Lit, the full spoilers podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film adaptation. Tonight, most listeners will go home and be greeted by jumping dogs and squealing kids. Podcast episode updates will wheel forth from their phones or tablets, and one of those updates, slightly brighter than the rest, will be from us, Danny and Laura, telling you to listen. <laughs> and scene, welcome. Welcome to Film is Lit. I'm Danny, the self-appointed film expert. And I'm Laura Sheher, the self-appointed lit expert. And today we are covering Up in the Air, written by Walter Kern in 2001, adapted into the film of the same name in 2009, written by Jason Reitman and Sheldon Turner. And it's another special episode. Laura, why? We have a guest! A returning guest making his third appearance, my oldest brother, Matt. Matt, say hi. Hello, hello. Requesting takeoff on runway 44, please. <laughs> this, is, this is the quality content you get with guests like this. You might recognize Matt from episode 52, all the way back, episode 52. This episode that we did with our other brother, Tim, on American Psycho. You know, that family-friendly <laughs> masterpiece. And then... Even further back, episode 24 on The Martian, uh, the sci-fi masterpiece. Uh, now he's back a year and a half later, making his third appearance for Up in the Air, an episode he can relate to. Some would say it's based off him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Matt, for those who haven't listened to your previous episodes, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm Matt. I am Dan's oldest brother. I am Laura's strongest brother-in-law <laughs> i am a recovering member of the uh elite traveling class a uh, a flyer a flyer mile aholic if you will and i'm also a recovering stormtrooper from the management consulting empire mm. so happy to uh happy to chat about this book as well as mormons i have a lot of experience with mormons from my <laughs> from my flights uh so nothing disparaging nothing but love for them but uh many many a story I'm excited to hear all of your anecdotes. <laughs> That's why we had you on. Just yeah. for the, it's crazy how closely your life uh, resembled uh, the life of Ryan Bingham. And realistically, sure. we could have had Tim on for this episode too. I have reached out to both you and Tim for coaching tips on how to be a work traveler because I'm fairly new to the game. So Tim could have been on this episode too, but he didn't quite make the cut. <laughs> yeah, he's he's already been on three <laughs> yeah. times. We got to level it out between the right. two brothers. We can't make either of them jealous. Right. Got to can't pit them against each other. <laughs> uh, but yeah, up in the air, we kind of teased your journey a little bit in your background, but it was you all the way back when this movie was released uh, that recommended it to me. And it took me a few years to finally get around to it, but I watched it and it was a masterpiece. So I'm so happy that we get to talk about it. Finally, I had no idea it was based on a book until uh, you brought it up. And the book, <laughs> oh boy, uh, we'll get into it. I said it was your third 
appearance on the pod. It's funny how two of the three appearances you've had on the pod, you've covered books that are, I would say, unreadable. <laughs> would you agree? Yeah. <laughs> Matt, would you agree? I've noticed that I was as I was reading Up in the Air, the novel, and I love the movie, but as I was reading Up in the Air, I said, man, I'm getting this persona where the only things I read and the only things that I talk to are reflective of me as a person and that I'm a terrible person. And then I'm a yuppie jerk, so self-centered, only wants to know about status, constantly trying to get ahead of the fellow man. And uh, and so that's not who I am, people. It's, that's not who I am anymore, at least. I'm out. I'm out of that game. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a dad. I'm a corporate man now. I'm, uh, I'm no longer obsessed with flyer miles, status, lounges, although they are very nice still. I, pre- I do appreciate Oh, yeah. That. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been to the Ambassador Lounge once, and I basically spoiled the rest of traveling for the rest of the time because whenever I just go to a, the regular waiting lounge I'm with all the normal plebs, I'm like, oh, this is so gross. Um, no, I'm really excited to talk to you, Matt, about getting out of the game, I guess, because I feel like as you're descending onto the runway of fatherhood <laughs> and, and a less scheduled, crazy life with work, maybe, um, I'm kind of taking off on the other end of things. Um, I'm in a bit of a lull with travel right now, but like I said earlier, like I've learned a lot from you and Tim and I don't know if we want to get into like journeys now, but I mostly have been asking like my superiors for travel tips and like what's best to sign up for rewards programs, like what's best to avoid. Cause it is like such a game And it is kind of exhilarating, like as complicated as it is, it's kind of fun to know all of the ins and outs and to be able to come out on the other end of a really tough work week and to say also like, but I also gained 30,000 miles with, you know, Marriott or Hertz. So it's also kind of one of those things that's like, it is fun and you do have to turn it into a game after a certain point because it's also sometimes a little bit insane, like how much you are in the air or, you know, working out of a hotel room, stuff like that. So I like that idea that it's a game, but I also understand that it can be a little bit hard to keep up with. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. On the way to work, there's a coffee shop called Bluestone Lane and they have a rewards program and every 50 points you amass and one point equals $1 spent, you get $5 off. Now I am a gold member at Bluestone Lane. And I get perks. The perks, they don't match the money spent. (laughs) But if I don't get at least 50 points every two weeks, I lose my damn mind. (laughs) It's an addiction. I need those rewards. I need to be a gold. I'm not going to be a silver member. That's one free latte a month. (laughs) That's a joke. That's for losers. So I totally get it. I'm getting ahead of myself. So Matt, tell us your journey with the book and movie. Go. So the uh, the movie came out when? 2009? Yes. Right? Uh, and I graduated undergrad in 08. And I graduated, and I was very lucky, 08, like bottom to bottom, right? Like the, the floor had fallen out of the economy. <laughs> but I had, I had fortunately secured a job with a startup medical device company. And we were very tight on cash because we were a startup literally in the basement lab of a, a Tufts University building. And so here I am. It's 2008, 2009. I'm 23 years old. I have absolutely no business running this company's 
preclinical division, right? Which basically means like before you get to humans is preclinical. But here I am, I have a BS in biomedical engineering. I can handle this, right? And I have less than a year experience. Uh, but we did the math and it was cheaper to do our studies out in Utah and fly me out every other week to manage those studies than it was to do them in Boston because you know, to house anything in Boston is obscene. So very quickly, I amassed crazy status with Delta uh, because every other week I was flying a four-hour trip from Logan to Salt Lake City, hopping in my Hertz rental, and then driving up to uh, a town north of Salt Lake City, staying in a Marriott. And I did that until I went to business school in 2013, right? And, uh, <laughs> and so just crazy amount of Delta points, went to business school, and then said, hey, you know, let me let me double down on this. Went to consulting. So what I did what Ryan did, uh, and I have some things to say about that once we start to talk about it. But I did that for another four years with like a religion. Every Monday morning, five or six a.m. fly out. Every Thursday night, five or six p.m. fly back. And so eight years of basically weekly flights. And and uh, when I was consulting, I was consulting for pharmaceutical M&A. And so as Laura knows, there's maybe like two pharmaceutical companies in the middle of the country. You're basically yeah. on one coast to the other. And I didn't have many on this coast. Um, in fact, I had many overseas. And that's another thing we should get into, right? Because mm. uh, firing people in the US, yeah, it's tough. Firing people in Europe, that's where it gets real. Uh, yeah. That's where, that's, yeah, so that's where the elite status, you know, as I would cry myself to sleep and then cry myself waking up in the morning, <laughs> it was nice to be in a, you know, a, a floored ceiling <laughs> glass walled shower overlooking the uh, the banks of, of Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. mm. That's so, my perk. That's my I was work. Uh, and I'm out now. Uh, so thank <laughs> God. But all right. So so back to the movie. So I didn't see the movie in 09, but I started to amass some street cred amongst my friends and coworkers as like, hey, you're the flight guy. You know, oh, by the way, did you see that movie with Clooney? Uh, something about the air. <laughs> so at that time, a uh, little little side story here. I uh, I started secretly dating my now wife, and my now wife is a was a fellow um, startup member of that medical device startup that we, that I worked with out of undergrad. Uh, we had very strict no dating policies, so for three years we went without telling anyone. And mm -hmm. so the time I was back in town, we took very seriously. And so one night after uh, probably a dinner in uh, Davis Square, we came back. We said, "Hey, like, what's what can we watch? Like, oh, it's up in the air movie. Let's let's check it out." And I was in. I loved the movie. I will say, I, at that point, I've always been a movie buff, as Dan knows, but at that point, I tried to call the ending halfway through. Mm. So I made my guess halfway through. Heather, my now wife, made her guess halfway through and nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. And I would never, like, I, I would never see that coming. <laughs> as yeah, a, that's amazing. Uh, as, like a, as, like, a mid-20s ignorant male, like, pff, that's not... That's not, a, that's not a possible ending, uh, but yeah. she, she crushed it, right? And then, um, so here I am. I love I love that movie. Apparently, I love the director, too. Uh, I think he made mm -hmm. Thank You for Smoking. Is that right? Yes. That was his first yeah, feature, the, yeah. Yeah, both of the, both those movies are fantastic. Juno's great, too. Juno? I haven't seen Juno. I guess I should. Um, <laughs> and then I found out it was a book. I said, hey, we got we to gotta read it, and then uh, I made the mistake of reading it. And here, yeah. we, and here we are. <laughs> But that's okay. I mean, we've read a lot of really huge stinkers and it just makes me come out 
the other end loving the movie more exactly because my brain is so blown that someone was able to read this and get the story out that they do in the movie that's like even more than reading a good book going to a good movie like that's just so impressive to me right it almost is better that way because a book being good great and a movie being great those episodes usually revolve around us just raving for two hours and then it's over. But we could really dive deep into the directorial and writing decisions made to elevate this material to the stratosphere, Mm -hmm. pun intended. I knew of Jason Reitman, the director, through Juno. It was a big smash hit sensation. It had a budget of around five million and then it made over a hundred million. So Jason Reitman was super hot in Hollywood. Around 2009, my freshman year of high school, I was really getting into film at that point. You had recommended this film. I didn't get around to it until my freshman year of college, so 2012. And I was in my dorm room watching the film, and that ending drops. And out loud to no one, I went, holy shit! (laughs) I could not believe it. I'm not the best at predicting endings, but I will always remember that moment in my dorm room, watching my laptop, just being completely, completely blown away. And on rewatch, it is really hard to pick up any hints that Alex is married and has a family. I've now watched it three times. Only on my third rewatch did I notice little hints that Alex wanted to tell Ryan something before she left, but was holding back. And that's only a slight interpretation. I'm not really even sure if I could be reaching at this point, but there really is no indication that that twist is coming up. So it makes Heather's guess even more impressive. So I knew I needed to show this to Laura. And for whatever reason, we didn't get around to watching it because it wasn't on any streaming services for a while and we couldn't find the DVD anywhere. Finally, once Laura started traveling for work, I knew this would be the perfect movie for her. And the whole time I was just waiting and with the anticipate to show this to someone who hasn't seen it before. Oh, what a thrill. <laughs> what a thrill. It's you're waiting 90 minutes until that twist comes. Oh boy, you have no idea what's coming. <laughs> You don't have the slightest clue. (laughs) I had my phone ready. I took a picture of Laura's surprised face. It's in my favorites. I'm going to post it to the Instagram. But boy, that watching it a second time with Laura, that was even more special. I just mere hours before this recording finished the book. I normally listen to books a week, two weeks in advance before recording. I simply couldn't get through it. I I simply couldn't bring myself to listen to it during my commutes when I was working. It was just so tough. So I'm not as prepared as I should be, although I I, I think I have a few reasons as to why the movie elevates the book. But yeah, I, I had a tough time with the book. Nice. I think we all did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my journey starts back when, again, we've said I started traveling for work. And out of the blue, my boomer boss, who is basically Alex in this movie, was like, oh, you know, if you have all these questions about traveling, you should watch this movie called Up in the Air. It will give you some really good tips about like things to pack and 
you know, how to travel through airports and all this stuff. And I go, okay, you know, this, and I, I did no research into this movie because my boss is like just a boomer. And I was like, this is probably just going to be a rom-com whose main character just travels a lot for work. So I brought it up with Danny and he was like, oh yeah, like I've been meaning to show that to you, but great. And props to Danny for not even hinting that there was a huge twist in the movie. I think part of the reason I was so shocked by the end was because my boomer boss, like, didn't even say anything like, oh, like there's a cool ending. Like there's a surprise. You'll never, like, I don't think that was on purpose. I purely think she just like doesn't value the movie for what it is. I think she just maybe doesn't get it. <laughs> and and that to me was like such a shock because I think the end is so brilliant. Yeah. I was so like challenged by the end and devastated by the end that the fact that, again, my boss, Virginia, just like ha- did not even hint that there was anything special and different and groundbreaking about this movie. I just don't think that she necessarily gets it. And I still, I love her. She's great. But like, yeah, I, I think it's really funny that she just doesn't value it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we watched it about two years ago, I think. And I loved it. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. And then I read the book a while ago. I think that we were trying to cover it for the last season. So I read it a long time ago. And like, the more I got into it, the more I was not liking it. And I was like, oh, God damn it. I don't even think that Matt and Danny have started it yet. <laughs> like, And I just had nothing good to say. And so I actually like props for both of you for getting through it because I read it so long ago that at first I was contemplating rereading it. And then I was like, no, I just can't. (laughs) I'm not going to put myself through this again. And I enjoyed the movie just as much as I did the first time. Like Danny, I was also looking for moments or glimmers that Alex had a secret. And there's really only one time where I see it right before she's getting on the plane to leave from the family wedding. That's the only time I get a little bit of a glimmer that she like, really wants to say something but just can't bring herself to do it so again props to the screenwriters who pulled this beautiful phoenix out of the dumpster fire that is the book and props to all of the actors who were able to cover up everything that happens in the end so that's my journey (laughs) right so how how does that work dan Do, do the writers say hey this is something we can work with and it's probably cheap like, does that factor into it? Like, no no one else is bidding on this, so therefore we can probably get it? That's a good question. I don't really know the bidding war between it, but there is a fascinating story with how the original script was conceived. So back in 2001, Jason Reitman and Sheldon Turner separately, unbeknownst to each other, started working on a script, right? They don't, they don't know each other. It was Sheldon Turner's script that was put on the blacklist and then Jason Reitman kind of revamped that script once he saw that someone else had adapted it and then he created his own thing and originally he was just credited as the sole writer but there's enough similarities between the two scripts that Sheldon Turner also got a screenwriting credit but yeah the only information on the desirability of the book is that these just two men just read it and said, this could be a movie, which I mean, props to them because I don't see a movie in the book. 
Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have a narrative. It's aimless, which mirrors Ryan as a character. But just because the framework of a book matches your character doesn't mean that it's compelling uh, or deep or insightful or readable. Um, The book is a stream of conscious narrative, which can be cool sometimes, but by like hour three of the audiobook, I'm like, I don't care about Ryan's opinions on hotels or about the lady he's currently with. But the biggest difference between the character of Ryan in the book is that he likes milk. Let's get into it. (laughs) Wasn't that weird? Am I the only one that thought that was weird that he drank milk? (laughs) I don't don't remember that detail. I think I like... You know, he talked about it like a billion times. (laughs) You're the one who read it most recently. I think I just like, I wiped my brain of this book because I just don't care. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be one thing if he was a health freak and said, hey, like I'm traveling all this time. I don't have time to work out every day. I probably have some blood clots going on in my legs. I need to stay healthy. I need some calcium going on. So therefore, I'm going to be a health freak. But he's not that, right? So he's not in good shape, does drugs, does alcohol terrible life balance doesn't sleep uh you know by the way yeah you know marriott points and milk love them (laughs) marriott points and milk um yeah so i wanted to touch a little bit about the structure of the novel and i talked to matt a little bit about this when we were at a family wedding a couple weeks ago but it reminded me of thomas pynchon's writing And I don't know if either of you, you both of you might have seen Inherent Vice. I have not seen that, but basically Thomas Pynchon's writing is very similar where it focuses on a main character who is seeking knowledge to make sense of their fragmented and unanchored lives. And that sort of leads them to become paranoid because they think they start seeing like patterns and signs from a secret entity or organization that is either after them or has to include them in their larger scheme of things. And ultimately by the end of most of Thomas Pynchon's books, the main character just kind of has this like crisis of self because there really is no pattern in life. And that's what they come to realize is like, there is no meaning. So you have to create that meaning. And very similar to this book, it's all very stream of consciousness. You don't really know if the narrator is crazy or should be paranoid about something going on. And so I I think that may be what Walter Kern is going for, but I don't like that style in general. So I wonder if people who really enjoy books like Inherent Vice or The Calling of Lot 49 are more intrigued by this. I just don't, I don't see it as a successful vehicle for talking about that idea or that theme, which I do enjoy. Like, I I don't believe that there's any like bigger meaning in life. So I actually agree with that theme. I just don't care for like the paranoia. I think we can be a little bit more rational about it as humans um, to get to that point instead of being sort of frenetic and paranoid about it. That's how I feel. (laughs) Agreed. And the, the book had a bunch of arcs that led nowhere, right? So the book Alex was a dead end, right? right. Uh, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, they, tr- the book tried to make it a twist dead end. Like, Hey, Alex, you fired me a while ago. Didn't you remember that? And how, like, but it, that wasn't a twist. 
he tried to get that consulting guru to go into business with him. That went nowhere. Right. Mm-hmm. The book was nowhere near as hyped about the million mile status as the movie was. In the movie that was a that was a cool thing that was a kind of throughout the movie. And then myth tech like was a thing that was there or not there, which again like maybe a twist, but like not really. And if you look deeper into it, it's like yeah, he's chasing this thing that was never there the whole time. And the only thing that did like come to fruition in the end was oh, he probably has terminal cancer, but it's kind of up to, up to you to decide. So it was just it was one of those things where you're like I, I better get some payout after all the work I put into this book, and then it's just kind of it's just nothing. Whereas the movie, even though it was a gut punch twist ending. For some reason, you know, it's very, very enjoyable. It feels, it feels like, like, like the, the character got somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And it's very realistic because he's a man who, for his entire life, has been avoiding commitment. So when he's that far into his life, he's not old, but he's he's certainly not, you know, a young buck anymore. So for doing that for that long. He can't think the first time he tries to actually commit to something or to someone that's going to work out fine. Like Alec, like he has to endure the hardships of commitment before he can have a happy life. So I'm sure he's eventually going to find happiness, but the movie is pragmatic, realistic in the sense like, look, he's going to get a happy ending. It's certainly not by the end of this two hour movie. Right? Yeah, no, I love that. And I think that's a smart choice that the movie made to age Ryan Bingham up because mm. in the book, he, I think is like in his mid thirties, 35 and, and I, divorced, right? 35. Yeah. So I also read that at first Leonardo DiCaprio was going to be cast as Ryan Bingham, but they changed course. And I think smartly went with George Clooney because I completely agree. I think I really enjoy narratives that have older characters who have to, undergo a major sort of identity crisis because I always think that it is harder when you're older to come to this realization that the way that you've been living for 50 years instead of you know possibly 20 to 30 minus your childhood or so it's a lot harder to come around to that idea and to make that change and to accept that change in yourself so I think it was really smart to age someone up and what a perfect inspiration of casting to have the most like silver fox gorgeous like smooth suave confident mr george clooney to play ryan bigham i think that's inspired yeah good old bobblehead clooney yeah oh what a (laughs) what a hunk right it was very self-referential because at the time in 2009 clooney was the textbook hollywood bachelor he didn't meet his wife amal until four years later so he kind of like impeccable casting for right. sure and much more likable as so ryan much more likable and sexy i think one of the things that i wrote down too was like george clooney as ryan is so confident he's so confident that he knows how to live his life and i thought that that was so much more attractive and like the way that he meets alex that whole quick conversation at the bar is so like sex it's filled with sexual tension and all they're talking about is mileage And like, I love when Alex asks that question, like, how close are you to your 10 million miles? Or or to your goal. To your goal, right. Because he doesn't even reveal the goal. And he's like, that's a personal question. Like, that's so sexy. They're so wonderfully matched. And I find that any type of like 
coming around to understanding that he wants to be in a relationship is lost in the book. Like there's no way that he's going to like change by the end of the book. I don't see that being like a new goalpost for him. Whereas in the movie, you, you see him sort of come alive when she challenges him in that way. One of the things that I was thinking of when I was reading the book was, so I, I was over in Amsterdam on a consulting project. And like I said, Letting people go in, in the U.S. is is simple. In in Europe, it's it's a nightmare. Yeah, but sometimes it just has to be done. And so I was over there on a particularly ruthless project. And you know, when I was over there, barely getting any sleep, trying to get in and out as much as I could. But you know, sometimes I just I'd have the TV on just for background noise. And so when you're over there, your 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 channel options are limited. And mm-hmm. so I would watch. Is it Two and a Half Men? Is that the one with Charlie Sheen? Mm-hmm. Two and a Half Men. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't like watching Two and a Half Men, but it was one of two TV shows on that were in English. So I'd have it on. And so I was reading the book and I realized like, hey, this guy, between the book and the movie is kind of like Charlie Sheen in real life versus on TV show. Where on the TV show, mm-hmm. he's a playfully devilish guy. He's a ne'er-do-weller older brother who just happens to find money and, you know, He's a bad boy. But then in real life, like, oh, Charlie Sheen, you're actually a bad boy. Like, this is not, this is no longer cool and fun. This is, yeah. this is kind of path- not pathetic, but like, this is dangerous and wild. And that is the difference between Ryan and the movie, where, like, sure, you, know, you love firing people and you hate being at home and you'd prefer not to be around your family, ha ha ha, versus the book, where it's like, oh, you, you only care about yourself, you only want status. You'll literally fly across the country just to take a lunch meeting with the basis of getting points, and nothing about you is really that kind of redeeming. And so uh, I couldn't stop thinking about Charlie Sheen, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, he plagiarizes somebody's book to write his own book. Yeah, there's really nothing redeeming about Ryan and the book at all. <laughs> right. He I... won't even give his points to his sister to like fly his like recovering sister to fly back to home you know that remember that whole yes well i half remember i half remember the book (laughs) even though i literally just finished it yeah what an apt comparison that's that's perfect i couldn't even say it better myself i will say in the end of the book i think he does he accomplished something and that he hit a hit the number and the reason why i'm trending towards he's terminal is that like i think he does give some points to may either mayo clinic or cleveland clinic in the book of like Mayo, right, I'm yeah. just like yeah, I'm just out. But it wasn't it wasn't out of, you know, hey, I, I found love for my family, I'm gonna give you some points. It's uh oh well I guess I can't use these. And you know, what what was me? So here you go. Yeah. I think it's really interesting too, if you come at it from this way, to look at how Ryan feels about his actual job in the book versus the movie. Because in the book, his whole goal is actually to hit his milestone and then quit. Like he wants to be out unless he gets hired by myth tech, but that never happens. But that's really his goal is to get out just after he hits that milestone. And in the movie, I think it's a little more complicated where he actually does really care about the people who are on the other side of the desk. And he cares so much. Again, it's complicated because he uses that sort of as a guise to keep himself on the road because a completely new character that's introduced in the movie is Anna Kendrick's character named Natalie, who comes into CTC 
uh, Ryan's company and says, basically, we're just not going to fire people in person anymore. We're going to do it all through Zoom. We're going to do it all remotely. And so part of the reason Ryan is resisting this is because that means that he's going to get called in and not have access to flying all over the country anymore. But I don't know if you two agree, but I really do feel that he is looking out for the people that he's letting go. And he does have a lot of empathy for what these people are going through. And he's been doing it for so long that he has this sort of sixth sense of of what to say to people to actually get them thinking about this as an opportunity rather than a loss of an opportunity. Mm, yes. And like, Matt, you can go into this a little bit more, but I didn't talk about this too much on the podcast, but last year I was let go in November and the way that my company handled it, I've only been through this once, but it was really shitty. <laughs> like basically our, our drug was found to be not viable. And so like within two weeks, they were basically like, yeah, we're just cutting 30% of the company in the first wave of layoffs. And here's your email. You're not working here anymore, Laura. So when I was watching this the first time, I had not been let go. During the second watch, I had lost my job and I was trying to put myself in the position of those people who were being let go. And it's really tough to know like whether the platitudes that Ryan is saying (laughs) are helpful or not. But the one that really changed my feelings was the one with JK Simmons because great scene. It's a really great scene. And I do feel like I wish I would want somebody to help me see even even just in the first wave of shock that I had lost my job which by the way like it was basically an email saying you're done here like no severance package not even a timeline of when my last day would be and and I remember (laughs) your employer did what Ryan said you should never do just saying like this is so hard for us right I yeah so like someone two or three levels above me basically (laughs) sat there and talked about herself for like five minutes about how hard it was for her to let me go. And the only thing that was going through my mind was fuck you. Absolutely. Fuck you. Like, this is not about you. This is about me. I want answers. I want my severance package. I want my last day of work. (laughs) Like I have all of these questions. So like, again, like going back to the movie, I think the scene that really makes me feel like Ryan believes in what he does and believes that it's important for him to be there in person is the instance when he's letting JK Simmons go. And he really like, he walks with JK Simmons every step of his immediate reaction of processing this information. He walks him through the anger. He meets him on the other side of that and he walks him through the sadness and the feeling of loss and he meets him on the other side of that and he starts to talk to him about you know what did you actually have to give up to start working at this job that gives you retirement and money to send your kids to college and stuff like that like i really do get that sense out of ryan from the movie and it, i think it would have been helpful if i had someone who was at least a little bit empathetic about what i had been going through rather than someone who was talking to me about how hard it was for them to let me go. Yeah. <laughs> Who's ultimately, again, like someone 
up on the C-suite floor who still has her job and is making millions of dollars a year and probably got a huge payout when the company that I was working for mm. got, uh, you know, engulfed by another company. Right. So that's my story. <laughs> but I don't know, Matt, like on the other side of the desk, like how does that feel for you who actually had to do that to someone? So I watched the J.K. Simmons scene and felt really bad about how much better Ryan was at this than I was. And then I then I stopped <laughs> to think about it. It's like, okay, so let's just take a number that they throw in the movie, right? So so Jason Bateman says, like some American automaker is laying off, did he say two or 10,000? I forget which. Let's just call it just for, I think math might be easier for call 10, right? So 10,000 people are going, we're going to lay off, right? So let's say, let's say, okay, Joe, all right, Ryan Bing, I'm going there. Um, so there's 40, 40 hours in a work week because you're not going to fire someone off work hours, right? So 40 hours in work week. Realistically, I think it'd be irresponsible to say I can fire someone in less than 20 minutes, right? Because you have to explain what's going on. You have to answer some questions, give them the packet. And sure, it might take less than 20 minutes, but 20 minutes I think is fair. So that means you're going to fire three people for an hour for 40 hours. So in one week, you're going to fire 120 people. And now we're talking 10,000? Like that's going to take you somewhere, I mean, 120, somewhere between 80 and 100 weeks, right? So that's that's two years. Yeah. <laughs> so like there's no company that's going to like sit there and pay for you to fire you know, their staff over two years because like, the company's going to go, A, like the whole point of firing people is that you don't have money to pay them anymore. So mm -hmm. you can't take that time. I mean, even like let's say you're working in a team of four, right? So like if you're working in a team of four, I mean, still, like, you can't take it more than a month. A month is too long, right? Like, a quarter is way too long. So then the only alternative, unfortunately, is one of those I would prefer if it's a live, hey, here's a town hall, and this is what we're up against. Here are options. We weighed every single option, and this was our last option. We, I promise you this is our last option. Our costs weren't being matched by the money we make. Here's all the opportunity we took to make more money. It didn't work out. We now have to reduce cost. Here are all the ways that we've already reduced cost. There's only one thing left to do, folks. It's either some of us or all of us. And that message needs to be delivered very delicately, preferably in person, a large auditorium, uh, so people can, be, can feel heard, can ask questions live. And then it is, unfortunately, a meat grinder of, hey, you know, the packets go out, the emails go out. Please show up on this day and, and give your badge, and we'll give you whatever it is that you need. Uh, to move mm -hmm. on. And so in that sense, it's funny that you say it that way, Laura, because when I was watching George Clooney, uh, I started to feel bad. And then I realized like, okay, this is ridiculous. He can't fire all those people mm -hmm. just by himself. But the two things that did stick out to me is that in the, I think the very beginning of the movie, he says like, okay, and like, this is just the beginning. And then his own inner monologue says, I'll never see this guy again. Like he's, mm -hmm. he's going away. Right. And then later on, he talks to uh, Anna Kendrick and says, we ferry wounded souls across the river of Sen, And right before they're on the other side, we push them out of the boat and make them swim, right. which all of that coming back to me is like his, he has basically Ryan has two goals. One goal, fire the people. That's what he's getting, that's what he's getting paid to do. Second goal, don't get sued. And that is all mm -hmm. you, they, that's all these people care about. That's all I cared about was do not get sued by this European works council for inappropriately firing them. So whatever George, Orion Bingham need to do to make them calm down, go through the five stages of grief, get through the anger stage and then get to acceptance of, okay, I accept the fact that I'm getting fired. Yes, I am a cook. 
and maybe I do want, and this is back to the J.K. Simmons thing, maybe I do want to go do my cooking thing. You know what? You're right. I'll take my servants. I'll go try the cooking thing. Like one check off, that, that guy's not going to sue us, right? Right. And so like, unfortunately, on the other side of the table, it's how can I do my job and how can I and HR and the corporate legal team do this without putting the company at risk? Because we're already shelling out a bunch of money in severance. The last thing we want is another chunk of money in arbitration legal fees. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And like every part of me like wants to keep that side in mind. And I think probably until I'm in the position where I'm either letting people go or making the decision that we need to cut X amount of this company, it's really hard to like pull back and be like, anything would help. You know what I mean? Cause like I heard all the platitudes, I heard all of the wrong things to say. I think, I think like this company in particular, which is probably fairly common in smaller startup pharmaceutical companies. Like not a lot of people had the experience of having to let go 30% of a company. And I think that's also partially why it was mishandled a little bit, but yeah, it's like hard to know that anything would feel good, especially within the first week of Mm. learning this information, because like ultimately it just does suck. (laughs) Like there's no way of like icing it or putting lipstick on the pig because it like, Again, I don't know that anything would have helped me feel better, especially in these first in the well, especially in the last two weeks that I had at that company. Yeah, I guess too, like when when you break it down into the statistics of how long it would actually take to spend twenty minutes to fire people, I totally understand like why like the emails have to go out quickly, and then you're scheduled for your meeting, and it might not be for another two weeks or five days, and that kind of leaves you to wonder like, what did I do? Why am I being let go in the first round instead of the second? Stuff like that. But yeah, ultimately, like, it's just an interesting thing, I think, for like this movie to focus on. Um, And I think like that's another reason that I find Ryan a really compelling character, because if he was being pulled in, and again, this is like in the movie situation, if he was being pulled in to fire people remotely, I feel like he would feel like he was losing his job because he wouldn't be able to do it in the way that he wanted to. And I have a feeling that he probably wouldn't stay at that job for very long if he had to go completely remote. Exactly, because the one breadcrumb were given to suggest that Ryan, even though he values doing a good job over the feelings of the people he's firing, his caustic reaction to Natalie's new business model would suggest that, hey, there's more than just being sued at stake. Like you can really mess someone up by firing them over Zoom. He knows that there needs to be a personal touch for two reasons. A, to avoid them rushing off and and doing something drastic, but also to be there in person, shepherding lost souls onto a better path. And the ending that I guessed, so, so, so I, I said halfway through the movie, I, I try to guess the ending. And so I said, this is going to be dumb. At the end of the movie is going to be him sitting down in front of a computer screen is going to be someone on the other end of the screen firing him from his job because they no longer need a road warrior like himself. That was, mm-hmm. that was my guess. Clearly, that didn't come true for the better. Mm-hmm. I will say the, there were a few times in the movie where I don't think they meant to be funny, but I, I did laugh. And one of them was... When Alex was talking to Natalie and she said, I can't believe your boyfriend who you moved out here for 
dumped you over text. <laughs> and then George Clooney goes, yeah, it's kind of like firing someone over the internet. Yes. Yeah, so I, thought that was, I thought that was great. <laughs> I <thought> that... Yeah. <laughs> Those type of witty lines you don't really get in the book. And it no. should should be mentioned that there's no Natalie in the book and no technology subplot in right. the book. It's just... There's also no work, right? Alex, so Ryan doesn't... It's kind of like American Psycho. He never actually does any work in the book. Yes. Right? He just talks about it. And I had to look up to see if Ryan in the book had the same job as Ryan in the movie because I really wasn't sure. And I know that Walter Kern was probably, that was kind of the point. Like he's just this aimless worker who's not working, traveling across the country. But Ryan is so detached as a person that it goes beyond making a point. It goes beyond keeping your attention as a reader. It's mm -hmm. it's. It's a lot of nothing. You're reading just a lot of nothing. It would have been more suited to be a short story, in my opinion. Do you? Would you agree with that? That's interesting. Yeah, I think it's a an example of how well the screenwriters took the inspiration from the novel, because I feel like most people, and I'm projecting, but I think that most people who would be writing a script would have looked at that job and been like, I don't think anybody's heard of this. And so it's going to be really complicated to build a character around this type of very niche industry and more power to them that they actually decided to use that as a piece of character development. Because I think what I was sort of getting at before you so rudely interrupted me, <laughs> just kidding, Danny, <laughs> um, was that I actually saw like, the threat to George Clooney's character of being called in and having to work from a place like Omaha, where he's based out of, right, in the movie? Yeah. Doesn't he live in Omaha? And in the book, he's based out of Denver. Right. So Omaha is even more of, like, bumfuck nowhere. <laughs> it's literally the middle of the... Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that the way that they used that, again, very niche industry as character development is that like there are a few industries that really require you to be on the road all the time. And they use that to point out that Ryan's biggest vulnerability is that he doesn't feel comfortable having a home. And that again, is I think why he's so threatened of going fully remote because he hasn't put the effort for 50 years or for however long he's been alive. He hasn't put the effort into building that home. And so the fact that he might actually have to face going home to this like empty, nothing apartment where he doesn't even have clothes hanging in his closet. And he has like basically everything he owns is monogrammed by Hilton or like a hotel, like every pen, every slipper, every card he hadn't has in his wallet is an expired hotel card. Like everything that he's built is to make sure that he can like leave it behind really easily and be efficient about leaving those things behind. And so again, I think it's like really insightful to go with the inspiration that came from the book and say like, wow, what, what can we do with this? How can we build a character whose biggest vulnerability is that he doesn't have a home and he doesn't want to face that reality? Yeah. So on that note, I guess that strikes a chord, right? Because I've never been to Omaha. I'm sure it's nice. I think a lot of... <laughs> Californians are moving there recently, but right, <laughs> probably not known as the metropolis that you know the yuppies flock to. And so, much like Ryan, when I was in my 
20s living in a crammed bachelor pad in Boston, I could be there and have a fridge full of condiments and, you know, tequila and a bed with a, you know, 100 thread count, something that I got at the local (laughs) Target and a old army blanket that I stole from our basement growing up. (laughs) And it was probably freezing because it was Boston and I didn't want to pay for too much heat. So I could be there. Or I could be in a suite somewhere in a Marriott and my bed is made for me every day and it's very nice and warm and there's a bar right downstairs. It's probably quite nice and it's probably a restaurant down there too. And so, yeah, I probably do want to be, I did want to be on the road more so than I needed to be. And uh, I am very fortunate in that I uh, enjoy my family. I don't wish to be away from them, but that is one of the... um, that's one of the jokes in consulting of like, hey, like that guy must really like hate his family because he just like loves traveling. He just loves being on the road. And yeah. most of the time it's a ha ha ha. He probably hates his family. But like every once in a while, like, like you might actually have a guy who like generally is running away from home life and hides it as a, hey, I'm an elite traveler. Yeah, I like looking at it from that perspective, too, because something that I looked at the second time we were watching it was Ryan's family and truly like what is he trying to get away from because they do seem like maybe simple midwesterners but they're not hateful they have not pushed him away like he is actively completely shoved them to arm's length and something that I think in the movie it said that like family doesn't fit into a box And that's said while Ryan is packing his suitcase. So I think it's also, you're sort of meant to think like, okay, they don't fit into a suitcase. They don't fit into a neat box. And I think the only thing that we can really get out of that is that Ryan just didn't really think that his life was glamorous enough. And he got a taste, like you were saying, of like sleeping in really nice beds and being taken care of by people that he didn't have to have a complicated emotional connection to. He just had to sort of, be nice to and maybe give a tip every once in a while. And because that was easier for him and a little bit more glamorous, he just decided that cutting ties with his family was going to make it easier for him to have this more glamorous life. And Mm. that's really the only reason that he walked away from his family. Like they're complicated, but they're not bad people. Right. And -hmm. they're actually delightful (laughs) when you, when you spend more time with them, they're actually, again, like maybe simple, but really sweet. Right. And he clearly loves his family, but staying in touch and being a part of a family requires work, mm. no matter your feelings towards them. And it's, it is easier and more glamorous to be on the road. Ryan learns that the hard way when he goes to Julie's wedding and asks to walk her down the aisle or suggests like, hey, I could be there for a bit. And it's way too late for that. Yeah. And Kara even demands Ryan to consult Jim, played by a young Danny McBride. Great to see Danny <laughs> McBride in a, in one of his earlier roles, uh, right before Pineapple Express. Um, wow, that, I forgot about that movie. That was a long time. Yeah, <laughs> um, but Carrie even demands this is your chance to step up. You practically don't even exist to us. So now this is your like last chance. So like Ryan wants to be a part of this family, but by not putting in the work, he's discovering that he's really hurt his family. I really like the performance from Amy Morton, who plays Kara Bingham, who looks a lot like George Clooney. I mean, I guess 
kudos to the casting director. You made on-screen siblings actually look like siblings. Melanie Linsky, who plays Julie, doesn't really look like them, but she's also a great actress. It's great to see her. Speaking of complicated emotional connections, the book, Ryan and the younger one, Julie? Yeah. Do you guys get, like, that's that was out of nowhere, and it was a bit odd, right? Like, them basically dating each other, brother, sister, in the whole movie theater scene, right? Yeah. Which I'm glad they left out of the the movie, but (laughs) non sequitur in the book. Yeah. It's so weird. And then in like the final chapter, Kara calls Ryan. It's like, yeah, Julie's left. She's shaved her head. She's. Good. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? And then that's it. And I'm like, there's really, yeah, there's really no resolution to that as there is no resolution to any of the threads, as you mentioned earlier, Matt. I love that addition of the family that you really get to know Ryan. He's really developed in that final third when he returns home. Of course, that's right before the emotional gut punch of the movie. But yeah, I think that's I think that's my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, and I also think that it gives us really good insight to how much Ryan has grown as a character. Like he hasn't completed his arc of, you know, coming back to family, that kind of thing, and like maybe wanting to settle down or have kids or something like that. But number one, I do like that in a movie. And that's another comment I kind of have about how adult this movie is. Like this is not something that would speak to young people. Um, But the second thing is I really think it gives us good insight into how much Alex has not even started her character arc. And the whole point of the movie to me is just starting Ryan's transition. Like he hasn't even really committed to it yet, but at least he's aware that for him to feel satisfied, something needs to change. And when Alex like swings that door open and doesn't even acknowledge that she knows Ryan and in fact, like doesn't say like, oh, you know, to her husband, like, oh, give me a second. I'm just going to like talk to this person who's just showed up to the door. She literally is like, I have no idea who this person is. He's he must be lost. Yeah. And shuts the door. And I again, devastating like I almost cried the first time I watched this because I just did not see that coming and like I think it's so interesting to see that like dissociation between Alex's two characters of how like confident and how much she enjoys being with Ryan like that chemistry is undeniable oh yeah and then the complete shut off cold no reaction and the very end and like again i just think like that it shows what a massive transition that ryan's gonna have to make and all of the like time he's gonna have to make up with his family to actually make that change so like those two are on completely different paths now and i think that also kind of argues like as devastating as it is is like that they don't get together by the end I don't think that they would work out period because like Alex hasn't started that transition to move away from the family that she probably loves, but has never been fully committed to anyway, because she probably just like got married because that's what you're supposed to do as a woman. Mm -hmm. And she found a little bit of a glimmer for her, you know, traveling was probably just an outlet for the person that she always was because as women, like we're not usually given that chance. Um, But she just hasn't like, made that transition to like admit to herself that maybe she never wanted a family or maybe she never wanted to marry the dude that she was married to. And now she feels tied down like that stuff 
that's a lot to unpack. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's like a pretty big box to have to open and come to terms with. And like Ryan showing up at her house might be the start of that, but it's certainly not the end. Yeah. The first time I saw the movie, my one criticism was I thought Alex's phone call with Ryan in the car when she's like, that's, that was my family. You could have really messed things up for me. The first time I saw it, I thought that felt slightly out of character because that was like so harsh for what had like she wasn't the least bit apologetic for that but then re-watching it and listening to you I think that reaction came from a lack of maturity or a lack of an arc like she has yet to fully realize that hey maybe a I don't love my husband or maybe this wasn't a right idea to enter this relationship even if I could get away with it so yeah it comes from it's a very mature movie because it comments on maturity. Yeah. Or lack thereof. Yeah. Of adults. Yes. Which, you know. And Anna <laughs> Kendrick, Natalie even does com literally comments on it now that you bring it up, right? So again, going back to that scene, it's one of my favorite scenes of the movie where Anna Anna Kendrick, Natalie had just broken down in front of George Clooney. <laughs> Anna's a better actress than that, by the way. That one scene where she breaks down and uh she she's <laughs> low low point for her. Uh, anyway, yeah. so so she's now it's a little overblown. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she's now venting to uh, to George Clooney and and Alex. And so that's where the whole like you dumped she got dumped over text is kind of like getting fired over the internet line comes from. Uh, <laughs> and Nana goes on like, look, Alex, I appreciate all the things that women of your generation have done for us. And then uh, Alex has a great comeback. She's like, happy to help. And George right. Clooney said, well, well done, well done. <laughs> so that was a very perfect quip right in there like yeah well done but uh anna kendrick natalie goes on to say look i just feel like no matter what i do and how much i work it doesn't matter until i find the right guy and mm -hmm. so she which i mean clearly you know 36 year old bro i didn't think of this perspective but uh alex could have very well have been in that spot where she found she was clearly doing well professionally i found a guy in chicago like all right good enough kind of mat matches all the criteria I just went through and uh, and have kids. And look, of course, of course, she's going to be head over heels for her own kids, but maybe just stuck with her guy. And in George is that uh, that parentheses, right? So the 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 release, I think she calls it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, because I feel like from Alex's position and like it, I think she's meant to be a millennial, like she's meant to be our age. Yeah. And I certainly feel like there is a push and pull between someone that I like, I, I was talking to Tim about this. In fact, like right after I got this new job and I thought I'd start like auditing again soon, I was like, one of my questions was like, how do you deal with being away from home when you have a partner that you want to be with all the time, but you also want to balance like, and Danny and I don't have kids. So like, it's really hard for me to be away from Danny, but I also know that like, this is what I want to do. I really enjoy my career and it is really hard being away for three weeks or so and not seeing your partner. Like it's tough because you enjoy what you do in your career. But then like, again, how do you balance that with wanting to be home and wanting to like go on adventures? Like we were on a nice little vacation this weekend and I want to do that too. And projecting like if we have kids it's like ah, then you're gonna want to be home even more but yeah it's a tough balance to strike and I appreciate the precipice that Natalie is at and I'm 
obviously glad that her like deadbeat boyfriend dumped her because that wouldn't have it probably would have worked out very similarly to what alex has now like her reality Ooh, the origin story of alex that's like yeah. that's it <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's it. it exactly yeah. yeah um but she's like at this precipice and i think it's interesting like basically natalie does kind of exist in the book except her name is alex and when Ryan first meets her on the plane, he's super fucking condescending to her. He's like, oh yeah, this is just like some mid twenties woman who feels really powerful right now, but just hasn't felt the pull of motherhood and being married and being at home. And he's making all of these assumptions on a plane because she decided to move seats because a guy was like sexually harassing her. And I was like, really, I, I felt very protective of that Alex character in the book because I was like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> that's where I am right now. And I feel like I'm on that precipice where like, I'm trying to, again, like balance the career and also, you know, missing home and missing family, like for him to be condescending toward that was really diminishing I think to what a lot of women feel like when they do enjoy their career and it demands a lot from them but you're also still like very socialized to be at home so I didn't like that part of the book obviously <laughs> right basically most of the book is just Ryan making assumptions about people or just little anecdotes about people right so yeah I I guess I didn't make that connection that the book in the book Alex is Natalie yeah. She's definitely younger. Yeah. And he's just right. the first at their first meeting. He's just super condescending. And he's like, yeah, just like in 10 years, she'll just decide to have kids and then get out of her game. So it's not really important for her to actually focus on her career right now. Right. I was it's like, just, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was just so jarring to read Alex in the book because in the movie, she is so confident and just a goddess of, of a woman. Of industry. Yeah. yeah. Played brilliantly by... Vera Farmiga, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Anna Kendrick was also nominated. George Clooney, nominated for Best Actor. This movie itself nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Picture. It won a total of drum roll, please, zero. A goose egg. It won nothing. And it's funny, Jason Reitman and Sheldon Turner, they won all the precursors up into the Oscars. And so that night they were slated to win. All the prognosticators predicted they would win, but it went in an upset, went to Precious. Mm. So there's that. Okay, yeah. I haven't seen that. Yeah. Nor so have I. to uh, a question to both of you, could you make this movie today? No changes, like just one for one. Like could, could you release this movie today? Do you think? I think yes, you could, but it would be streaming. And you would not know the box office numbers. So I'm glad you asked that question because I wanted to bring up the box office and its budget. So it cost $25 million to make. Most of that money went into George Clooney's salary, rightfully so. Sense, yeah. I mean, he was super hot in 2009. He's still hot. He's still, oh, yes. he's still, I'm saying, I mean, I in drawing people, I mean, he's a good looking man too. Mm -hmm. But off of its $25 million budget, it made $166.8 million. Now, you could make it and release it today in theaters. It would not make a fraction of $166.8 million. Right. And, and adult dramas 
just don't they just don't pull in that type of dough these days. So that's why I think a streamer would pick it up. In terms of like its cultural message, I think obviously it was much more effective being released in 2009 coming off of the heels of the 2008 economy crash. Funny enough, they were filming as the economy crashed, so they it wasn't necessarily a response to it. It just so happened to happen at the same time. They happened concurrently. So it was kind of like the the best of luck that it was released in 2009. Now it's a period piece. So I suppose you could release it today, no changes, but it's much more potent coming out immediately after the 2008 crisis. Right. And they did interview people who had been let go from their jobs, like real people in the movie as well. Not all of the people were actors who were being let go. Although, I don't know if you feel the same way, Laura, but we're noticing history repeating itself a little bit. I know we're not technically in a recession now. Yet. (laughs) Well, we'll see. Um, But I, we know tons of people, I mean, yourself included, Mm -hmm. who have been let go out of nowhere. We know a ton of businesses that are, I mean, of course, the pandemic had a lot to do with that. You know, a lot of our favorite coffee shops or little venues just went belly up like that. But even outside of the pandemic, a few years removed, we're kind of seeing history repeating itself like it did in 2008, like this movie depicts. Yeah. Matt, I'm super glad you asked this question because I have two comments. If this movie were to be made, um, I did want to address a funny cameo by Zach Galifianakis. However, there is a moment where it flashes a kind of like a choose your own adventure story where they're like, he ends up being reacting or he ends up reacting to his firing in a multitude of different ways. And one of them is that he brings a gun to work. And I do not think that that would make it into a cut of, of, uh, of if the movie were to be made nowadays, it was actually kind of jarring the first time I watched it because that is unfortunately a reality a lot nowadays. Mm -hmm. Um, the second thing I, I kind of follows that example because of how emotionally charged I think workspaces are nowadays with that kind of constant threat of workplace violence. Um, And this is also sort of biased because I think the biotech industry is really interesting, (laughs) but I wonder if this movie could be remade instead of someone being, uh, what do they call the, the transition CTC? A career transition counselor. Career transition counselor, thank you. Instead of that, I would actually be really interested to see this reset as like a pharmaceutical auditor (laughs) or or some type of auditor who's also on the road a lot and has to deliver really difficult news. Um, But like a huge shift that the pharmaceutical industry had to make during COVID was remote monitoring, especially of clinical sites. And I think like that would be kind of, again, maybe just interesting to me, but that type of transition, I think we're still going through and we're also going through a lot of transition in terms of like working from home. So I'd be interested in a movie that kind of discussed that type of like massive work shift and talking about like, how can we effectively monitor either clinical or preclinical sites remotely and how effective is that? And how effective people can be like fully working from home or being 
um, hybrid sort of situation. That I would be interested in seeing that, not necessarily because like, again, CTC isn't like PC or whatever nowadays, but I don't know. I'm just interested in the pharmaceutical industry. So that's my position. What about you, Matt? Yeah. So I, I, first thing on the CTC. So, so in the book, Ryan has exactly the job that I had in that. Yeah, sure. Some of the time he's firing people, but most of the time he's not, he's doing other things. And so I doubt, I mean, I'm sure there are some, but like there can't be any big name people that are only out there firing. Cause that's just mm-hmm. like, now you're the Dr. Kevorkian of all consulting firms and no one's going to touch you because the second that you're associated, then you know everyone's going to run away because you think they're going to get fired. So that was one thing. I, I, so on my, so I, I love this movie when I first watched it primarily for the ending, but also because George Clooney is so good in it. Yeah. And then I watched it again and prep for today's talk and I was watching it and I've, I guess I've been so conditioned to how careful Hollywood is around just the PC nature that like it made me, it made me cringe on behalf of the movie, not because this is how I feel, but like for George Clooney to still be the good guy and always be the good guy, but to shut down Anna Kendrick the way he did the beginning of the movie to her face mm. and to school her all the way through and to, I don't want to say condescend, but basically show her the ropes and for Anna to never get the upper hand, it just felt like this movie couldn't be made in that way. They'd always have to like put like some little thing on it to give Anna the upper hand. And I just feel like George Clooney is able to be lovable and I guess condescending and still be a good guy, but it'd just be hard to allow in this day and age, I suppose. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I thought, so like I've had mentors like Ryan Bingham's character and I guess as, I don't know if this is because I was like young or maybe because I've been like conditioned and socialized as a woman, but like. I now, in retrospect, really appreciate the people who didn't really let me give them shit or like allowed me to just like sit back and watch a lot. Because again, in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, like I didn't have any experience and I didn't have the insight that they did into like the realities of the workplace, whether that was in like construction or pharmaceuticals or whatever I was working in. But at the same time, like I do sometimes wish that I could have spoken up a little bit more. So I feel like the movie is a really good reflection of what I went through when I was younger and also like what I wish I wasn't, or I had had a little bit more agency to like push back, but right. I don't know. Sure. So this is the, this is the microcosm of how it'd be made today. I think is that the, the, the beautiful scene with JK Simmons, right? If it was made today, Ryan would be floundering in front of J.K. Simmons. And then it would be Anna who had that beautiful, like, hey, I see in your resume you had this and this. And then, like, mm. he sees the light through her. And, like, that's her redeeming moment, right? But in yeah. this sense, they didn't do that. Right? Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think, yeah, if it was released as is today, Twitter would eviscerate the writers for Ryan's treatment of Natalie, although I viewed it as a very realistic depiction of someone young, fresh out of school, who has big ideas, who think they can revolutionize a business, but first need to go through some some severe learning curves in, before you get there. Um, well, and I'm like, I'm usually the first person who's going to call out a situation for being like sexist and racist mm. and XYZ. Like, I'm usually the social warrior on this podcast. But I don't find any issues with 
their relationship. And again, apart from like some situational things, like he stereotypes people in the airport, but that's kind of played for laughs. So like, I don't even think that that's like super. I'm like my mom, I stereotype, it's faster. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, like again, yeah, right. Like that's even played for jokes. So like I, again, as the usual social warrior on this podcast, I think that everything lands in a way that is like respectful and realistic and like again that's why i think that this is like a very adult movie like i don't think that i would have appreciated it and honestly like if people if like mid-20s to younger people were criticizing it for like anna kendrick being like a gen z i would be like y'all are gen z's like i don't think you understand this movie. you don't appreciate it for what it is because maybe like in 10 years you'll look back and see that like this movie really hits like it's really realistic and maybe you're just like too close to Anna's character that you feel like you can't say anything right or you can't push back but like that is that is the reality like that's where you were when you were 25 yeah and Ryan's not a saint either he needs to learn how to coach Adelie over and he does over the course of the movie yeah cool Last thing I want to touch upon, Matt, Mormons, your experience with Mormons. Yeah. So the book goes into this a little bit. There's no mention of Mormonism in the movie. I kind of just want to get your take on Walter Kern's writing around Mormonism. So I'll say every stereotype you've ever heard, speaking of stereotypes, every stereotype (laughs) you've ever heard about Mormons is dead on. Dead on. (laughs) In that they are the just the happiest most accommodating, welcoming people. Sure, they're super religious, uh, but they're all about family. They love their trucks, simple life. <laughs> they love to be outdoors. And I can't tell you how friendly and approachable they are, mm-hmm. which is why I truly enjoy them. Because I would, fl- I mean, I was 23, 24, flying out every week, staying in a hotel. And case in point, I would, uh, I'd be out there after a week of work, I would say, hey, guys, good job this week. Let's go grab dinner tonight. And then they would all show up at the restaurant, wives and families, right? Like, and so now it's no, it's no longer a business dinner. It's, uh, hey, you said dinner. Uh, this is dinner for us. So now, I guess, Matt, you're picking up the tab for, you know, not four people, but, you know, 24 people because it's a Mormon family, right? And, yeah. so, and we, oh we eat dinner God. together. So good gosh, we're going to eat the dinner together. <laughs> um, so I enjoyed them. They, I enjoy going outdoors and hiking and going on ATVs and big, big football culture out there. And then, uh, they would study me in the same way that I would study them. They'd ask me all sorts of questions about, and like, now, like when you do drink alcohol, uh, like what, <laughs> what, what is your state of, like, why, why do you, why do you enjoy it? Right. And they try to like study me and then I'd study them. I'm like, you know, okay, so you go on this mission so Mormon culture, they typically between high school and college, you go on a mission. And mm. if you're, so if you're older, you get to choose where you go on the mission. If you're younger, the Mormon church chooses for you. And I know all just of this so because I've seen the book of Mormon. So you don't have to explain. Oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, uh, <laughs> but what's um, great, great. So that's also funny, right? So I, I saw a book of Mormon during that time I was going out to Utah and I came out and said, guys, <laughs> I think I think you're gonna enjoy it. Like I know you guys, I you I know you, you know me. We have the same sense of humor. We laugh at each other. Like I really enjoyed it, so I think you really enjoy it. 
and I got to tell you, like, they hated it. <laughs> they didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. <wanted> it. Um, <laughs> but, Sorry. Uh, yeah, I interrupted you. No, but, uh, but yeah, so, so the mission. So I was very intrigued because I remember, you know, junior year of high school, all I cared about was, like, what college am I getting into? Whereas their junior, all they care about is, okay, it's like, so where am I going to go on mission? And what's interesting is that they don't get to choose. The, the church chooses for them, and they have a stipend. So most kids pay some of the way, but the church pays for most of it. And so the kid who gets sent on mission to Rio de Janeiro pays the same amount to go on that mission as a kid who gets chosen to go to mission in Detroit. Right. Like, so like mm-hmm. that is not cool. And, um, no, you can't leave your mission either. Right. So once you, you are assigned, you are assigned. And I said, well, like, I mean, it's the Mormon church in Salt Lake city. Can they really, like, if you're in Detroit, can they really tell if you spend a weekend doing whatever? Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, leave a story for you, Matt. So the story is that there was a couple in high school they went on a mission he was assigned washington state she was assigned hawaii right so like <laughs> she got assigned hawaii and so he wanted to go visit her in hawaii so one friday night he's like look i was done my my mission duties i'm gonna go sneak off catch this flight to hawaii and see my girlfriend i'm gonna be back by sunday night so buddy like here in the hostel with me like just keep just keep a lookout if someone asks where i am you know just do me a solid and you know say i'm off somewhere playing cards i don't know I don't know if they can play cards. Um, <laughs> and so this is Friday night. So he runs to the airport, boards the Hawaiian Airlines, flies to Hawaii. He lands in Hawaii, is greeted by agents of the Mormon church with a one-way ticket back to Washington. Is And so as I'm being told the story, Whoa. I have the same look on my face that Laura has on her face. of like, that is creepy. <laughs> But the, my Mormon friends, and again, love them to death. They showed me an awesome time. They were hooting and hollering and laughing that, like, this idiot thought he could get away with it. There's no way that, like, the Mormon church would allow it. I'm like, hey, guys, like, this is – That's That's, like, up. deep state this stuff. This is abuse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is abuse. <laughs> I mean, it is. they do get to choose to go on mission, so it is their choice. But it's kind of the church's – it's their parents' choice to put them into religion and their choice to, you know, go on this mission. Wow. But uh, so, so, yeah, so, so some small – quirks there and you know again they would give me a hard time about being especially being from boston like okay so matt you're some irish drunk all you do is drink <laughs> I mean, I'm, God, I, I do much more than drink just because i have like a drink <laughs> at, at dinner doesn't mean that i'm drunk I also at the same eat time beans. Like, yeah yeah <laughs> i mean so i got very friendly with them so they would give me a hard time i'd give them a hard time i'm like so guys so you can't drink coffee why so we'll have it alters your state of mind okay and for that same reason, you can't drink alcohol, right? Like, yep, state of mind. It's like, okay. But you can drink 7-Up. Like, yeah, because every morning in Utah, there's a line around the corner at every 7-Eleven for their 7-Up, right? They mm-hmm. their 7-Up yeah. To like get them up for the day. And so, okay, but that gives you a bit of a kick, right? So so then let's go back to coffee. So does it not the same thing? Like, no, but, but coffee's hot. And per the book, hot water is only made for bathing, not for drinking. Like, but I've seen you folks drink hot chocolate, so I don't – what is going on here? <laughs> there are cracks and, uh, in your line of thinking. <laughs> so, again, um, every stereotype is absolutely dead on. The nicest folks I've ever had, very business savvy, very smart, very nice, 
all about family, all about neighborhood. But if you don't believe me or if you want to know more, just go watch the South Park Mormon episode and they, they kill it too. It's, it's, it's like the whole point of it is like, yeah, it's a bit out there, but at the same time, they're the nicest people. So they're doing something right. And uh, so don't worry about all the, all the stuff you hear. Just, you know, be friends with them if you can. This is super interesting. Twice. This one guy I worked with tried to set me up with his daughter in that. Like, <laughs> they'd like, okay, like, so, so again, that family dinner, the business dinner thing, I'd say, okay, like we're going to go meet here for dinner. And then one time like, hey, look, I just, you got to give my budget a break. Like just like, how about just like four of us? For dinner? <laughs> and uh, so, so twice I would show up and it would be me and the owner's daughter and a text from the owner saying, Hey, really sorry. We couldn't make it, but uh, I didn't want you to feel lonely. So I sent my daughter and that happened twice. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh my <Yeah>. goodness. <laughs> Thank yeah. God and, you never committed to that. And you yeah, ended up with Heather. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, she was very nice. And again, like this guy was, he was one of my better, more, better mentors. Uh, he taught me a lot of things just even though he worked for, technically worked for our company, but he taught me a bunch. So no harm, no foul, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I should have said, thank Moroni. <laughs> but, um, my last Mormon story was I was out there for, there's one time I was out for like three weeks straight and I needed a haircut. And so I'm walking down the road of this one town I don't want to say it, but um, love the town, very far away from Salt Lake City, the Aggies, right? So agricultural. And I uh, I go into this place with a barber pole spinning, right? So I walk in there and I walk in, it's nothing but, uh, it's just like a women's hair salon, right? So I see every woman in there, they look at me, I look at them, I slowly back out because it's not a <laughs> barber shop. And then someone says, hey, did, I mean, do you want a haircut or not? All right, well, you got me. And so mm-hmm. I sit down. And then, so she's asking all about me and asking uh, where I'm from and what I'm doing out here and what I'm doing this weekend because, you know, you got nothing else going on. And uh, she's like, why don't you go hunting? It's like, well, I, I wouldn't even know where to go or what to hunt. She's like, well, what do you hunt in Boston? I'm like, well, you don't really, you don't really, you don't really hunt in Boston. She's like, really? Like, well, so where do you go? I was like, well, I mean, truth be told, I've never been hunting. She's like, no way. How old are you? <laughs> He's like, you're 26. Are you married? No, no, I'm not. I'm not married. Like, how are you not? Like, is everything okay? You're not married. You're 26. He's like, well, no, I'm not. And it's, everything's fine. I'll be, I'll be okay. Yeah. And, and sorry. Yeah. I, I haven't been, hunt- I've been fishing like a handful of times, but like never hunting. He's like, well, like what kind of guns do you have? I was like, I, I, I don't own any guns. And I, I'm a bit ashamed to say I haven't ever fired a gun. And I swear to you, she, put down her comb and scissors and then like stood over me, pointed my head and like announced the entire place. Like get a load of this guy from Boston. He's never (laughs) shot a gun before. (laughs) And, and I'm the only guy in there and all these women are just cackling at me. Like you've never shot a gun before. (laughs) And so I, I told that story to the, those Mormons that I worked with the next day on Monday and to their credit, that night, like literally that night, they were already on the phone with the head of that county's SWAT team. And I went to the firing range for like three hours with the captain of the SWAT team who taught me everything. <laughs> and like, so super accommodating, but like, that is how quick they move and how nice they are to you if they, if they like it. That's insane. <laughs> and a little terrifying. Like they're, 
communication network must be absolutely peak. <laughs> I mean, it's all the I mean, it's, it, people don't leave, right? So you you're all in the same area, and uh, and so like the captain of the SWAT team, I don't know, played football. I think he did play football with the guy that I worked with. Sure. And so there I am, like not only firing my first gun for my first time ever, but firing an AR-15 and a 50 caliber and like these Jesus guns that you Christ. just like, like, yeah, like all these big shotguns and not a grenade launcher, but like a, like a massive, like shoot down the door type, uh, you know, four barrel shotgun. So Jesus it was wild. <laughs> wow. Wild awesome. times in Utah. My goodness. We've, Thanks for sharing. Yeah, that. no, yes. Thank you. Incredible <laughs> stories. <Yeah>. What? <laughs> Man, that's awesome. Incredible stories, just like the movie and not the book. <laughs> that brings us to final ratings out of four stars. Matt, go ahead. What would you rate the book in movie? So the movie, I got to go with four stars because it's lasted this long. Top of mind for me since I, I didn't see it in 09, but I saw it in you know, 2010, 2011. And any George Clooney rom-com is going to be an okay rom-com. Mm-hmm. But like the difference between an okay rom-com and this movie is that ending that honestly, I, I haven't seen much endings like that since typically like when ending hits you like that, it gets repeated. I, I haven't seen many. Yeah. Uh, so just the fact that I was so looking forward to it, I'll, I'll give it a, I'll give it a four. And then, so we didn't talk about much about the book because we didn't like the book. I went into it expecting not to like it because of all the reviews that I read before reading it. And so that lowered the bar enough for me, for me to enjoy the first, I'll say third of the book. And then it got a bit monotonous, but at the same time, Ryan's job in the book, like I lived that life and I hated that life for four years. That said, I learned a ton and it's really, it's paid dividends now. And so for that, I I can't, I'm not going to give the book, you know, zero out of four stars. I hate to give it two, but like, I'm, it's like a solid, a solid one for sure. Mm-hmm. That's fair. That's actually where I'm sitting. I was going to give the book a one <laughs> and I don't really have much to say about it. I just didn't like it and I'm not going to reread it. It was hard enough to get through the first time. And the movie, similarly to you, Matt, I pride myself with being able to call the endings of movies and television shows. And I feel like I'm pretty good at picking clues up, but I did not pick this up at all. I was delightfully and devastatingly shocked and surprised. So, and even again, like I will never reread the book. I will infinitely watch this movie and still be gut punched by the end. So four out of four, no questions. Yeah. It's a masterpiece. And so few films are able to weave tones between comedy and drama and subversive rom-com and period piece and a commentary on the economy. It's so many things. But above all else, it is both lighthearted and profoundly depressing. (laughs) I don't know how it pulls it off, that it, it makes you feel good but it also depresses you at the same time. It's an incredible magic trick. Jason Reitman hasn't really had any hits after this movie. He directed Mm. the Ghostbusters reboot a few years ago. And it's like- But his sister is freaking killing it. 
Catherine Reitman is fucking hilarious and she has the show Working Moms on mm. Netflix and I've watched that pretty much all the way right. through. There are a couple stumbles in that show, but it's really good. Yeah. And their father was Ivan Reitman, so mm-hmm. the late Ivan Reitman, so talented family. But yeah, incredible movie, masterpiece, four to four stars. The book, I mean, I'm a hater. What can I do? There's nothing for me. There's nothing for me here. My analysis doesn't really go beyond that other than I just couldn't retain the words as I was listening to it. It was entering my head and immediately evaporating into air. How apt. So yeah, it's it's going to be a zero out of me. I'm not going to apologize for that. You don't have to. It's our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and there we go. What an episode. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming on and sharing with us your long history of being on the road and how you're being called home, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Of course. I will say to all the folks out there, if you don't want to be berated under the breath of uh, elite travelers, I'll say when you're in an airport and you're on a moving walkway, whether it's an escalator or just a flat moving walkway, please stay to the right or walk. There are no uh dancing pirates that would come out and entertain you along that walkway so <laughs> either move or move over please well and that said. is my psa for uh, everyone out there <laughs> i love that i the one redeeming part of the book for me actually was ryan's love for efficiency because i am right that he like goes on and on about moving walkways and an espresso machine and how efficient it is and i'm like oh my gosh you are speaking my language i love efficiency especially when it comes to travel and food prep so mm. <laughs> yeah all right and efficiency when it comes to your little bumbling dumb husband am i right sometimes i have feedback yeah <laughs> um well yeah thanks again matt another it's always a killer episode when you're yeah. on we'll have you again on soon yeah hopefully another year and a half won't pass before you come on to do another episode all right thanks for listening we'll be back next week with our coverage on the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy can't wait for that As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.